0: That's the music of Mariachi Los Amigos, which was co-founded by ethnomusicologist, folklorist, and the 2015 Best Lomax Hawes National Heritage Fellow, Dan Sheehy. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Dan Sheehy has folk and traditional arts in his bones. He's spent his entire adult life appreciating, encouraging, supporting, and campaigning for folk arts. In 1978, he joined Bess Lomax Hawes at the newly formed Folk Arts Program at the National Endowment for the Arts. When Bess retired in 1992, Dan took over as Director of Folk and Traditional Arts at the NEA. From the NEA, he moved in 2000 to Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. Under his leadership, Folkways has published more than 200 recordings, earning 17 Grammy nominations, winning five, as well as one Latin Grammy. He's co-edited a volume on the music of South America, Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. And he's written his own book on mariachi music in America. And as if all these accomplishments aren't enough, as you've heard, he's a talented trumpeter whose group, Mariachi Los Amigos, is Washington, DC's longest existing mariachi ensemble. When I sat down to talk with Dan Sheehy, I had to start with the obvious question. I have to ask how a person with the name of Daniel Sheehy became so interested in mariachi music.
1: Well, there there are different lengths of answer about that. (laughs) The the shortest version is uh, just lucky. (laughs) I fell in with the right people at the right time. The the more medium length answer is that uh, um, really it's a story of my career in general. Uh, You know, I was at UCLA in the late '60s, studying to be a high school band director, a music educator in general. And UCLA, there was this extraordinary program with musicians, top quality musicians from maybe 20 cultures around the world. So I got to play a little bit of of gagaku music, you know, uh, Japanese court music, uh, African drumming, I was very much involved in West African drum- drumming, studying with Kwesi Badu, who was a great master drummer, uh, Shanti, and other music. And at the same time, a friend of mine at UCLA invited me to play in a rhythm and blues band. It was an African-American, almost entirely, Rhythm and Blues Band that played every weekend in Compton, which was, in those days, almost exclusively an African-American neighborhood. And this was like 1967. I was really taken to the music. And also, the Ashanti drumming, it was just a wow experience for me. I was in total awe of the skill of this Ashanti master drummer. And after a while, I started to think or realize. I started to look at my own educational experience, and I thought... Wow, why wasn't Ashanti music part of that? Why wasn't, why wasn't Rhythm and Blues, with James Brown, a part of that? And I'd started playing mariachi music, and Mexican mariachi music, and Mexican song harocho music from Veracruz. And I said, this is all great music. Why wasn't it part of my, of my upbringing, of my music education? And that's when I started, I was shifting over to ethnomusicology that really looks at all those issues beyond the sound, in the case of music, beyond that person the context of that it's performed in I I had two twin pillars from that point on that that guided me one was just being in awe of the skill and the beauty uh, complexity of these musics and the musicians that perform them and also I was a little bit indignant I saw it as a social justice issue that needed to be resolved Certain musics were favored, and I'm nothing against the musics that I was studying because I love them. That's why I was studying and playing them. But why weren't these other musics included? The answers were social answers. It uh, had to do with, you know, how our societies put together, how the the public school structure is put together, what's favored, what isn't favored, what's part of the canon, what isn't part of the canon. and I became driven with the desire to do something about that. So in my private life, so to speak, my diocese music became a major thing for me. I played anywhere from 30 to 35 hours a week. Could be weddings, could be uh, birthdays, could be funerals, even all sorts of things. And it just sort of pulled me in. It was such a beautiful experience being part of people's lives and communities that I had not been raised in. So that's basically was the beginning of the rest of the story
0: but you, you came at it through music did you grow up in a house that was music you grew up in Bakersfield
1: I grew up in Bakersfield California which was then a small town in the southern central valley of California agriculture and oil was were the two basic industries there my mother loved to play piano she'd been a bass player but she did it just just at home you know for fun And my father, uh, he would used to sing Bing Crosby tunes, basically. Around, he was Irish American from Boston. I think the the Bakersfield experience contributed to what I ended up doing as well. I didn't realize at the time. You just grow up, and what it is, it is. You know. But uh, yeah, one neighbor was Basque, others were Mexican American on the other side. We African Americans down the street. Later years, when I came back, the the more I looked, the more I realized how really multicultural and how diverse. And it was like my eyes had been opened. So anyway, that would have led up to when uh, somehow I met Bess Lomax Haas.
0: Which was going to be my very next question. <laughs> How did you first meet Bess?
1: Well, I'll tell you the truth. I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but I do remember that Bess, who was the, the sister of Alan Lomax, the great American folklorist, and the daughter of John A. Lomax, the, the father of the two great American folklorists and great American folklorists himself, she invited me to teach one of her classes at California State University, Northridge. She had two classes there, she was a full professor, and she hired a folklorist and an ethnomusicologist to take on the two classes, and I taught ethnological music. Then uh, that was about 1972, and uh, I remember she invited me to her house. I was playing 35 hours a week, at that time teaching in courses in three different colleges, and, and going to graduate school, and I,
0: it's great being young, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think about that, and I can't really believe how I actually did all that. I was probably just crazy. But uh, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll go by for 30 minutes, you know, hear what I'm supposed to do, then I'll be out of there moving out of the next thing. And I tell you, three hours later, I was looking at my watch saying, oh, my God, where did the time go? And my second thought was, these folklorists can really talk.
0: <laughs> how did you come to work at the Arts Endowment? That was in, when was that, 1978?
1: 1978, I was in the final months of a Fulbright-Hayes fellowship to do research in Veracruz uh, in the Gulf uh, side of Mexico. I had literally a one-room place. The bathroom, everything, that was one room above a little restaurant. And the restaurant owner said, Daniel, usted tiene una llamada, you have a call. So I went downstairs, and sure enough, here's Bess on the phone, and she, being a Texan at heart and in her way of being, she says, Honey, we have something here at the National Endowment for the Arts that you might be interested in. So I found out more about it, and so I came back, and I came up from Veracruz, It's a tropical zone, and I remember best picking me up at the airport in March and driving to the hotel where I was staying. There were these snow balls, really, There's big clumps of snow coming down. <laughs> and me ha- having grown up in the desert of California and coming from the Veracruz, where you know it was a tropical climate, this, this, I said, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into here? But what I got myself into was one of the, the great experiences of my life, really. It became my life as opposed to my job, really.
0: You and Bess really created the Folk Arts Program here at the NEA. How long had Bess been here?
1: Bess started work beginning of January 1977 at the National Endowment for the Arts and then partly what had been a a special initiative in the arts into a full-fledged program. Bess came up with the idea of being very proactive, a fresh idea pretty much. She had, in a way, created this network of people around the country who were close to local traditions. It might be Polish dance music. It might be spirituals from the Deep South or something like this. That was a, a kind of a novel idea. and So a, a big part of what we did then, the specialists, was to work closely with people to, A, tell them what the National Endowment was because almost nobody ever heard of it because they lived in their own communities and the National Endowment... Just kind of up here somewhere in the stratosphere, and uh, give them whatever help we could in um, organizing projects and putting together applications and, and all that. And
0: so it was really um, founding the program here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Then Bass understood bureaucratic structures, and she saw the importance of giving this field the validity of intellectual weight, of aesthetic weight, of of social weight, of every kind of weight you might imagine uh, that would go along with artistic traditions and making sure it's considered on the same basis that other art forms are considered.
0: Tell me some more about how you actually made the folk arts program work.
1: I liked the strategy, essentially, that Best put in place. We had very limited funds, and the, our world was very big. You know, we had five people in the building. In those days, 240 million people outside the building. And so w- both uh, as a way of using our funding to best effect, and also out of a sense of principle that culture is self-supporting. Uh, in some, some cases, it just needs a little push. It needs a little incentive And so we had a three years and out per project funding policy. And our our strategy was then to help them get started with the idea to give them like a running start. So after three years or so, they might be able to find revenue streams or the social uh, local community support to support that festival itself. So it's kind of like a Johnny Appleseed kind of thing. You know, you go, you see the thing here, you see the thing there, you see the thing there. And I thought, it was, I thought it was very effective, and, and so I bought into it entirely. I grew up in the local level, so I had a special feeling about that, You know that somebody would come to somebody like me or my family or my cultural organization, some small town, and be interested in, in seeing that, that my culture was honored and, and uh, was given a fair chance to be able to continue on.
0: 1982 was a banner year here for Folk and Traditional Arts. It was the creation of the National Heritage Award. Take me through that. What was the thinking behind it? What
1: we tried to do is to put a vision out there that would speak to the diversity that there is in the Folk and Traditional Arts field in the United States, and at the same time be able to let individuals shine through the idea of having a group honored that was a very diverse group that you'd have maybe a Cajun fiddler and you'd have a New England boat builder and you'd have a Midiachi musician or whatever it was. In those days we were struggling with a number. I think the first number was 17. We decided early on that 17 was too big of a number. (laughs) You couldn't see the trees for the forest if you know what I mean. And so that number was whittled down to a dozen or so, and then uh, later, after I left the National Endowment for the Arts, the number was decreased to nine. But still the idea remained to project this sense, extrapolate this, this sense of diversity in American culture. So built into this program of honoring individuals was that idea of we're really honoring an idea Along with honoring individuals, we were honoring this idea of diverse forms of excellence. And also, we were very careful in our rhetoric to not say that this person is the best. We would say that this person or this group represents the highest level of artistic achievement. So the the whole program of honoring individuals was in a way buffered by honoring something much larger than individuals in our, in our rhetoric and in our programming.
0: You became director of Folk and Traditional Arts That's here right. here at the Arts Endowment. That's right. That was in 1992.
1: 1992, best retired, and then I uh, became the, the director.
0: And I'm sure after then. on one hand it was kind of daunting, but on the other hand you must have had a vision for what you wanted to do as director. It,
1: it was daunting. Imagine, I still can't imagine, stepping into the, the, the shoes and the footsteps of Bess Lomax Haas. I mean, she's, she really was a legendary figure and, you know, part of the Lomaxes. And so, yes, yeah, no question about it. I'd worked with Bess at that point for, for 14 years, and I'd worked with her before in California. So I learned a little bit of street smarts in terms of um, how to deal in bureaucratic settings and, and national programs and all that. But it was a challenge. It was a challenge. And I frankly never knew whether I was up to it or not for the, for the first while there. So after a while, I, it was really a, a process of self-discovery as well as uh, discovering you know, my own way of being. And I think out of that, I I learned something that served me very well up to up to the present day, and that was I really admire those programs that have major public impact. So I moved in. I worked with Bess. I consider her the architect, and I was the carpenter that came along and the finisher. You know that that build out the house from that basic structure, and so that's essentially what I did. We commissioned the study of the changing face of tradition. We we built out the apprenticeship program to reach more states. We uh, started at the beginning of a core support program for some of our main traditional arts organizations. There were very few, and they were important to our field, and they needed that core operating support. And uh, also, shortly after then, became the, the bad old days, the battle time, when the arts endowment budget was cut nearly in half uh, in the mid-90s, and we lost 47% of our staff and the whole structure of the Arts Endowment changed. It was restructured, so the programs did not have their own budget. There were systems of, of formulas for scoring, for allocating budgets that were, did not lend themselves as much to proactive uh, reaching out, that is, had been the case in the folk arts program. And so it w- there was a new challenge there that got me into the office every morning about 7 o'clock to uh, just do what I could to keep the achievements of Bess and her, her brilliant leadership alive and see how we could integrate the best part, uh, the most valuable part of the Folk and Traditional Arts program into the workings of the newly structured National Endowment for the Arts. So that took me up to about 1999 and, and then some friends of mine at the Smithsonian or twisted my arm a little bit to move on to another job.
0: You've had a 15-year career at the Smithsonian, directing and curating Smithsonian Folkways Recordings. For people who might not know what Folkways Recordings is, describe it.
1: Smithsonian Folkways Recordings is the nonprofit educational record label of the National Museum, the Smithsonian Institution. It was started as a private company by Moses Ashe, uh, launched in 1948, that evolved over time not just to be what some people call an, an encyclopedia of humanity through recorded sound by making sure you have representation of cultures from around the world, but also to think strategically. He was looking to see how he could use his cultural tool, this record label, to get some other visions, sounds, or notions of the beauty of some of these in- cultures involved in conflict to get the public to think a little more deeply and maybe sensitively about what was going on in Korea other than war, what was going on in Vietnam other than war. And so that's what he devoted his record label to, and that was the legacy that we inherited uh, when the Folkways Records collection came to the Smithsonian Institution in 1987.
0: Well, when you stepped in as director and curator in 2000, what were you thinking? What was your vision for Folkways (laughs) Records?
1: I uh, came along and I said, well, here we are, okay. We have 2,400, 2,500 albums of music from a big swath of the world. And so here we are in the great perch the Smithsonian Institution is, is widely recognized, and so you almost start off ahead in terms of trying to get people's attention. But what can I do to really make this label make a difference in the world? and and you know what I did? I fell back on the philosophy that, that Bess had really instilled in me in, at the National Endowment for the Arts, and that was the idea of empowering people to be themselves as best they could, giving them resources. And here at the Smithsonian, we have recorded sound, mainly music. And so I ultimately developed this philosophy of two guiding pillars, a good listen and a good story. So, you want to have music that grabs people because it's, it's great music. It's well performed. It's, it's interesting, maybe something like no one's ever heard before. Sometimes one of our slogans for a while was the best music you never heard. I remember. <laughs> and with the idea of pulling people through the music into the backstory, telling the story, for example, when we published a recording of Rahim Al Hajj from Iraq of Oud music. You know, the idea there was very much the Moses-Ash type of idea of focusing on the beauty of this creation, the beauty of the person, of the artist. Rahim al-Hajj is a beautiful person as well as a great artist. And then pulling them into the story, his story, of being a refugee from the Saddam Hussein era to all the, all the difficulties that he experienced to leaving Iraq and then coming to the United States and, and resettling and reestablishing his, his life, basically. And so through that music we hopefully could pull people into the story and they can have a greater understanding of Iraq, of the whole story of the war and the resettlement and the refugees and all that.
0: And that CD was nominated for a Grammy. And that CD
1: was nominated for a Grammy. That's right. We're very pleased by that.
0: And Raheem is a fellow recipient of a National Heritage Raheem, Fellowship uh, this year. I, 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 couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't
1: help but smile when someone sent me the list of uh, the Heritage Fellows this year. And when I saw Rahim uh, Al-Hajj's name on there, Michael Alpert, um, also is a, an artist on the uh, Folkways, Smithsonian Folkways Recordings uh, record label. And in other cases, there'd be the story... That would hopefully grab people and pull them into the music. Another recording that won a Grammy was a very ethnographic, so to speak, accordion recording that was done by a rabbi who teaches ethnomusicology at Tufts University, Jeffrey Summit, who had been working with a Jewish community in Uganda that had become Jewish by being converted, following their leader in about 1919, and embraced Judaism and all its musical traditions and religious traditions. And the music was beautiful, but I think the story grabbed a lot of people, so they would come in and learn about the music. And then for us, seeing that connection back to the community was the same kind of connection that we tried to do with the Folk and Traditional Arts Program at the National Downward for the Arts. The more we can see that the community benefited in a, in a substantive maybe longer term sort of the way, the more we felt we'd really done our jobs here. And that's, that's exactly what, under my time at uh, Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, that's what we try to do.
0: You also were director of the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. Was that simultaneously along with your directorship of Folkway Records, or did you just take a little (laughs) sabbatical? Were you doing both at the same time, that's what I'm trying to ask here.
1: I suppose the best answer is I was trying to do both (laughs) at the same time, fortunately, both of those institutions, the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage, which is the host unit in the Smithsonian for Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, fortunately the staff was just terrific. And so, and I'd known most of them for many, many years. It was a challenge to do both of those. And in fact, before then, I was actually acting director of the Smithsonian Latino Center for a year in a time of transition. And in the uh, case of the, of the uh, Center for Folk Life and Cultural Heritage of the Smithsonian, for me, it was like a homecoming because of my earliest and most deeply uh, impressionable, I suppose, experiences were in the 1970s when Best Lomax Hawes had hired me to do field work for the Smithsonian. I came back and met the folks in the center in the mid-70s and, and then worked alongside them as a volunteer at the Folklife Festival for many years after I moved to Washington. And so to actually work and be director of the Center for Folk Life and Cultural Heritage for four years was a very f- wonderful feeling of homecoming, really, and it was, it was a beautiful time for me. At, at one point, though, I thought that both of those institutions needed their own full-time director with nothing distracting them, so... I stepped out of the, the director of the Center for Folk Life and Cultural Heritage position and just uh, was left with my wonderful Smithsonian Folkways Recordings uh, hat at that point.
0: Okay, Mariachi Los Amigos. Mariachi
1: Los Amigos.
0: You are one of the co-founders.
1: <laughs> That's right. How
0: did this band come together?
1: Frankly, when I moved to Washington, D.C. from uh, California via Veracruz, I was experiencing some serious culture shock. It was, for me, very different being on the East Coast than being on the West Coast. It was, it was a much different cultural terrain here in Washington back then, and there weren't a lot of Californians around, and there weren't a lot of Mayachis around, but somehow I just happenstance ran into a local group playing Mayachi music at the Folk Festival of Greater Washington at Echo Park. So I fell in with a few of them, and I remember about six months later, a few of us decided to start a new group We were all friends. We liked playing music together, so we called ourselves Mariachi Los Amigos, the friends. And our first job that kind of glued the group together was playing for the Monday night all-you-can-eat Mexican buffet at the Ramada Inn right next to the the Highway 395 in Alexandria. From those uh, glorious beginnings, the group kept going miraculously. And, uh, you know, for some of us, it was, uh, as they might say in Spanish, a desaogo. it was a way to let off steam. It, w- it was, a, for me, a great balance to uh, working in an office all day. And then go out, make music, have people get really excited and yell and sing along and clap and, you know, go wild. It, it was a great tonic and a great balance that, uh, that served me very well over the last uh, 37 years or so now.
0: And you played at the White House.
1: Oh, yeah, we've played at uh, all kinds of places but in D.C. Yeah. Uh,
0: the White House, how, who, when?
1: Well, we played a couple of times, but the more memorable time was the uh, Mexican president, President Cedillo, and his spouse was visiting the Clintons is the Bill Clinton administration, and uh, they invited us to play for the sort of the preliminaries. And so we put on our suits, did our whole thing, and played there for a while, and then they all moved into, into where the banquet was set up the security people, moved us into the blue room, the small small room in the White House. And and we thought, well, this is it. Okay, they're going to take us out to the gate and we'll leave. The door is open. In walks Bill and Hillary Clinton, arm in arm. And President cedillo and his wife, arm in arm. They shut the door. Bill Clinton says, okay, guys, play me something. And so we started to play our signature, the Mayashi signature song, Song de la Negra, And about halfway through, the social secretary is giving me the evil eye to, okay, cut it, cut it, cut it. We need to get them out of here.
0: (laughs) In closing, what does it mean for you to get the best Lomax Haas award?
1: I'll tell you the truth. I don't think I know yet what it really will mean for me to have been selected to receive the best Lomax Haas award. Uh, I was taken aback at the beginning because, again, I had been involved in the creation of the award in 1999, I think it was. And in my mind, the voice of Nati Kano, the great mariachi uh, recipient of the Heritage Fellowship, about, do you know what this means? This is a serious thing. And I, you know, it means uh, the weight is on my shoulders and the responsibility. And, and I think after really worrying about being on the receiving side as opposed to the giving side, I decided it's doing no good whatsoever to worry about this. So I should just enjoy it as much as I can. <laughs> And so thinking ahead, basically my plans are to follow the Natikano philosophy of this is is something to take inspiration from and then uh, move that into whatever next chapters of my personal life and my professional life that I might have left.
0: That was musician, ethnomusicologist, folklorist, and the 2015 Best Lomax Hawes National Heritage Fellow, Dan Sheehy. You can meet Dan and hear the music of Raheem Alhaj and Michael Alpert at the free 2015 National Heritage Fellows concert. Join us on October 2nd at 8 p.m. in Lisner Auditorium here in Washington, D.C. And if you can't make the trip, not to worry. We're webcasting it live. Go to arts.gov for more information. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.